So this is a conversation with Sharon Yam. She is a US-based Hong Kong academic who has been writing on various topics that I think will be interesting to the listeners of this podcast. She is Associate Professor of Writing, Rhetoric and Digital Studies, as well as a faculty affiliate of Gender and Women's Studies at the University of Kentucky. Her research focuses on questions of identity, citizenship, affect, and race. She teaches courses on transnational rhetoric, digital composing, and political emotion. So Sharon and I have been kind of conversing mainly on Twitter for the past year or so. One of the things that we started realizing uh, were the commonalities between the experience of Hong Kong and the experience of Lebanon. Now, I need to emphasize that this conversation isn't just about Hong Kong, uh, nor indeed just about Lebanon. It's actually about more, much more broader themes. We speak about Hong Kong in the context of disappearances, like Hong Kong is a disappearing city due obviously to the CCP's politics in the recent months especially. But we also spoke about the emotional cost of disinformation, by which we mean what is it like for, let's say, Syrian activists, Lebanese activists, Hong Konger activists, Uyghur activists, and so on, to sort of face the brunt of disinformation on social media, including and especially when people on the left actually participate in these authoritarian tactics. So this is a rather long conversation, and as usual, I thank you for your patience. Just please remember that neither of us are in professional studios, so we're trying to do our best with what we have. So as usual, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at FireDeeStimes. And if you like what I do, please consider supporting this project with only $1 a month on Patreon or BuyMeCoffee.com. And you can also do so directly on PayPal if you prefer. Patreon is for monthly, PayPal is for one-offs, and BuyMeCoffee has both options. And if you cannot donate, you can still help by reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Sharon Yam. Um, Sharon, it's a name that I go by in the U.S. and also was given to me on my birth certificate because I grew up during colonial British time. Mm -hmm. Um, Right now, I have been living in the U.S. for the past 13, 14 years, but I identify as the diasporic Hong Konger, uh, born and raised in Hong Kong. So I'm currently a professor in rhetoric, writing, and digital studies at the University of Kentucky, um, which is in a city called Lexington. It's a mid-sized U.S. city in the South, um, predominantly white, not a lot of Hong Kongers. And so I think often right now my research and teaching and just like kind of my being in the world, it's always fraught with this diasporic uh, identities and a lot of the times like confusions and complexities and yeah I'm more more happy to talk about anything related to that or to kind of the what it's like to bear witness from afar on a computer screen Mm -hmm. where somewhere like where you grew up in is quite literally on fire sometimes yeah 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 uh, well, the computer scene has taken on this uh, added dimension, obviously, with the pandemic. Uh, in my case, it's been basically being uh, forced to witness the men- like stuff happening back home in Lebanon um, from a distance, which like I've done, I've done before. So like you know when I would I studied in London and that sort of thing, and things were still happening back home. But 
uh, this kind of gave it an additional dimension. I feel the pandemic and the, the reduced mobility, anyway, in the sense that I can't I can't even go there. So there was that there is that um, added dimension. But like for those who don't know, uh, like we've been interacting frequently online, uh, well mainly through Twitter, and there's there's quite a few inter inter um, sectional themes, I guess we can call them between. Uh, Lebanon and Hong Kong, which I, I've ex tried to explore as well on my side um, a few times on this podcast and with uh, one piece that I wrote uh, for Lausanne, or like it was more of an interview format. But like even the title of one of your recent pieces, like Hong Kong, a city of disappearances, uh, speaks to me quite a lot. And I, I can easily see myself just like replacing the word Hong Kong and just writing Beirut instead and mm -hmm. and uh, writing something that, I mean, it won't be necessarily similar, of course, there are different contexts and whatnot, but there will definitely be underlying themes. And so I wonder if we can just start this or kind of get the ball rolling, I guess, for, when this, for this conversation with you uh, sort of introducing those who may not really know much um like what is the piece about the the underlying theme obviously it would be very difficult to get into too many details but like yeah just feel free to use as many words as you as you find uh, suitable yeah so a uh, little bit of context i wrote a piece for um a project called hong kong protesting by cha which is a nation literary journal so this piece was written on august 31st and so what happened was august 31st of last year, there's a group of anti-riot police that stormed uh, a subway station and started attacking uh, civilians and passengers indiscriminately. And so I remember at the time I was just, because of the time difference is a 12 hour time difference. And I was just finishing up work on campus, just finished teaching, was walking through the student center when I took out my phone and saw the footage of that uh, police attack happening. And I think that police attack sounds almost like oxymoronic before our current, the current uprising for police abolition, but that's essentially what happened. And remember seeing, again, on my phone, in the middle of a U U American University Student Center, seeing Hong Kongers begging the Hong Kong police to stop uh, pepper spraying them in close range and to stop beating them. And so uh, later on, the subway company had refused initially to release any security camera footage. And a lot of, quite a bit of Hong Kongers believe that there has been casualty that night, but the police insisted that nobody had died based on injuries. And so... Uh, this year, this August 31st, in the one-year anniversary, people kind of gathered around that district and that uh, subway station to commemorate with white flowers. But what was happening was that the government is pretty hell-bent on trying to erase collective memories and trauma. And I think that we understand that uh, scholars who study social movement and memories have talked about uh, the role of collective memories in keeping certain political events and ideology alive. And so I think the Hong Kong government and police know full well that it is dangerous to the regime if you allow people to continue to commemorate, to continue to try to hold 
the police force accountable for the violence. And so on that day, there was a lot of police crackdown uh, where people, including children and elderly who were just holding white flowers, were being arrested. Um, and then once again, I was watching all the all this happen on live stream. So for me, it was like a morning while I write this piece reflecting on the many disappearances that have been happening in Hong Kong. And that's not just limited to this particular crackdown, but it also connects to, for instance, uh, books written by pro-democracy activists suddenly were taken off shelf on public libraries or that now that the Education Bureau start um, implementing this, what they call a service for textbook publishers in which they will recommend textbook publishers to erase any mentions of separation of power, civil disobedience, and the Arab Spring from liberal studies course materials. And so those are all disappearances that are in a sense insidious um, because unlike a police beating, it's not something spectacular that can be captured on a camera, right? But at the same time, it has very far reaching impact that maybe to this day, we still cannot fully expect what's gonna happen or come out of these disappearances. And so my piece was essentially reflecting on that and also reflecting on the need for those of us who are still able to, to document, to bear witness. Um, and I think like earlier talking about like looking at the computer is almost a double-edged sword because on the one hand, is all the more necessary for us to watch it, to see it, all the computers, to record it. But on the other hand, a, a lot of the times these events are also traumatizing and re-traumatizing. And so to bear witness is also to have to bear that mental and emotional way. And I think that that's something that I, as a diasporic person, uh, is still trying to grapple with on a kind of on a daily basis. Yeah, for sure. Um, as I mentioned, I always see parallels between Hong Kong and Lebanon, but I do think on this particular thing, there are maybe more differences than similarities, not on the trauma bit necessarily, but more on the, um, the mechanisms that are actually being used by the respective governments, whether we're talking about like the CCP or slash the Hong Kong government on one side or the Lebanese government on the other. Uh, we don't have that widespread censorship, for example, we don't have they don't necessarily even have that sort of technology. So we're sort of dealing with the, or I would say Hong Kongers are dealing with a different kind of beast in some ways. But the background to what we're talking about, or at least one of the backgrounds to what, to what we're talking about is this national security law. Are you, uh, are you comfortable just telling listeners in, again, as many words as you feel comfortable, like what is it about and why is it that or how does it actually function? Like, why is it that uh, far-reaching in some ways? And how has it been implemented so far? So the national security law was implemented um, at the right at the, the cusp between June and July. Um, and so it is scary in a sense because it is so vague and so broad about what exactly counts as sedition, what exactly um, would incriminate somebody. And so right now, folks, or myself included, are concerned because the police has been using the national security law 
to arrest and charge people for, say, for example, shouting the protest slogan, liberate Hong Kong revolution of our time, saying that that um, could potentially be considered a separatist, spreading separatist ideologies. Um, and so people have been arrested for carrying stickers with similar kinds of protest slogans. Um, and so I think what what is a really good example of this widespread diffuse fears you see more and more of the times when Hong Kongers do come out to protest, which is like very few and far between now, they a lot of people just hold a blank sheet of paper. Um, so to say that, well, if I'm holding a blank sheet of paper, there's no way that the government could incriminate me on anything. And and the second part about, so in addition to kind of like encouraging self-censorship because nobody feels exactly safe, there's also the law uh, particularly mentioned that people who are engaging in these divisive, politically divisive activities, even if they're abroad outside of Hong Kong, if they're advocating for these causes, they can still be charged. And so, for instance, uh, I don't even, the time is weird, but I think a few weeks ago, um, there are Hong Kong activists who are already in exile, like Nathan Law, uh, Nathan Law uh, or Wayne, they were then put on a wanted list uh, by the Hong Kong police. And also, interestingly, on that wanted list is also Samuel Chu, who, ha- who is a US citizen. And so what we're seeing here is the government, through the national security law, sending a message to everybody that even if you're physically not in Hong Kong, even if you're diasporic, you are not, you will not be completely unscathed. You can still be implicated by this. Um, And so the third point I would say, Ed, is that while the law mentions that it is, it will, will not be implemented retroactively, it did say that the police and the uh, reserve the right to collect evidence from before to be used for your case now if they decide to charge you now. And so we're seeing more and more of these instances where uh, pro-democracy lawmakers or activists are being arrested or being like things that they have said back in March, for instance, that's months before the law was implemented and now it's now being used against them. Um, so in Cantonese, we have this phrase called meaning that whatever you say can be used against you and turn you into a criminal. And so I think that the widespread diffuse sense of anxiety and the eagerness to self-censor, a lot of it came from exactly this kind of how vague and broad the law was uh, purposefully written. Yeah, I... I've been trying to wrap my head around uh, because obviously I remember uh, towards the end of June, I already started seeing uh, folks on Twitter that I used to follow. There's a number of them who basically just deleted their Twitter accounts. There are some uh, people who um, changed their names and that sort of thing, at least uh, as far as their public profiles go. And the scale of it, as well as the speed of it, is something that I think well, from my experience anyway, most people in my circles have had a bit of a difficulties really comprehending. So it's always been uh, basically the way it's been happening is that I just send a bunch of links and we, just have, we have some kind of conversation and it just ends on uh, this is horrible, this is horrible. And people don't really know well, what can be done about it. And um, 
without necessarily asking you what you think can be done about it, because I, it's you know it's a very loaded question. It's a very difficult. But how have you uh, how have you seen people at least so far? Well, since the implementation of the national security law, how has been some of the reactions? For example, I uh, we can talk a bit about um, that there are quite a few folks that are, have either left or are considering leaving, and there are some who uh, maybe like in more of a new situation who are already in the diaspora and now uh, would have to have second um, thoughts before. Uh, ever deciding to go back and that sort of thing how, how, like if you can try as much as you can kind of like paint us a picture in the sense of like what has been happening uh, in hong kong and around hong kong since roughly that uh, the implementation of that law or at least since early july yeah so i would say that um i also in it, i also help edit a, a site called uh we are hong kongers and so that website collects stories of everyday stories of Hong Kong people. And recently they featured a few of these stories essentially reflecting on how their life has changed. And in one instance, it was a teacher uh, who is a Hong Konger, but grew up in Canada. And she was reflecting how in her school, she has a lot of uh, students and parents who are pro-government and pro-Beijing. And so, this teacher then real noticed that her colleagues and herself included started having like four different Facebook accounts. One is for publicly for everybody call all colleagues. And the second one just for people that they know share similar political views, one for their students and then one just for their family members. And essentially what that example shows is that there even for a job a profession like teachers, the, they're not 100% sure whether what they say in class or even in their private lives could be used against them. Like in this particular example, the teacher said, I am worried that my student, if they found out one of my social media account, will report me to the police and then I'll be charged under national security law, which for some certain um, charges carried a 10-year to life sentence imprisonment. And so um, a journalist on courts, Mary Hoy, also wrote a piece called Cultural Revolution 2.0, in which she interviewed uh, nurses and office workers about how their life has changed uh, since the law. And many of them noted that they were either uh, implicitly threatened by their coworkers, or like sometimes in a sense, like in one case, a police had saw a nurse with a with a clip, uh, with a brooch on, on her uniform that represents that she may be in support of the movement and the police told her off. And so essentially, because we're not sure whether we can trust the people around us, that I think that that, again, I keep using the word diffuse. It's because I think that there's no environment and no space in which one can feel completely safe to express their views without state repercussion. And so I think these are great examples on how the fear of state suppression is seeped into people's everyday life. And um, and there are still folks who are still tweeting about it, but they using anonymous accounts continue to share these. Um, also, uh, I mentioned Hong Kong protesting earlier, but the same 
uh, organizer, Temi Hall, who is also a professor in, in Hong Kong, is organizing uh, a Read with Hong Kong event this Wednesday, in which for an hour and a half or so, there'll just be eight to 12 speakers reading text on Hong Kong is a way to protect the spaces that we still have for freedom of expression. I think that despite the fear of repercussion, we are still trying. And I think that for me, for speaking for myself as a diasporic person, I keep thinking about how, because I'm not physically in Hong Kong, I am to a degree shielded from that physical danger of suddenly being detained or arrested. And so that's also one reason why I continue to use my real name, face, and identity to speak against a lot of the suppression. But at the same time, the flip side of that is I, I was like, oh, oh crap, does it mean that I may not be able to go back safely? And if I cannot go back to Hong Kong safely, how can I be sure that I am having a good grasp of understanding of what life is like there? And so there's always a lot of this dilemmas that there are no good answers to. In some ways, the vagueness of it is is what's terrifying because essentially it just gives carte blanche to to the government to do whatever it wants, at least to use any sort of excuses to do whatever it wants. And as it happens, um, a few days ago, I released the episode on Xinjiang, um, kind of detailing, going more into the the story of what's been happening in Xinjiang with the with the Uyghurs, um, as far the, as the cultural genocides go and everything. And as it happened, like we recorded that episode a month and something ago, and I released it uh, a few days ago. And as it happened since then, we've been seeing a sort of uh, elaborate crackdown as well in in Mongolia. Um, so it does seem, I mean, it, 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 it definitely seems that there's a wider policy at hand, although it's not always entirely clear what it is. Some, I've, I've seen some analysis like describing this as, uh, you know, right-wing Han nationalism or uh, just uh, plain old authoritarianism. And obviously it's, it's part, it's, it, there is a big component of that. But from what, uh, from where you're standing, uh, as far as Hong Kong is concerned, just so we, so we can focus on one place, uh, like recently, you've been called like a Han traitor, and um, how does let me let me ask it this way? How does your field, essentially, like your academic field, how does it inform the way you're approaching uh, what's been happening in ways that maybe other people might be missing, like focusing on the language, focusing on the on the rhetoric, um, in ways yeah, in ways that other people might be missing, I guess. Yeah, so I am a rhetorician. Um, and my, I had studied a bit and written an, art, an article about uh, the rhetoric of Chinese state nationalism. And so you mentioned that I was being called a Han traitor. Um, that was interesting because like on the one hand, like me as a person was hurt, right? If someone called you a traitor, um, and by the way, some context is like, I was called that after I tweeted about the police crackdown on, on the Hong Kong protest yesterday. Um, so on a personal level, feel hurt by the abuse, but on as a rhetorician, I then started to think about, hold on a second, to, to call me a Han traitor for criticizing the Hong Kong police and kind of by proxy 
the CCP is also is meaning that the CCP has been equated with the Han ethnicity as a whole. Um, and so there have been rhetoric scholars who study um, Chinese nationalism discourse have talked about how the CCP, in fact, uh, rhetorically had been working on to equate the party with the nation state. And so that means folks are unable or are discouraged to think of the nation or the national imaginary apart from the ruling party. And the ruling party, because it's a vanguard, also then um, get to de define what the statehood means to them and what the sovereignty looks like to them. Um, and so I think that right now, what we, when you, the mentions of like Xinjiang or Mongol, in the Mongolia, the, in particular, the language policies to have um, the Uyghur people in Mongolians use Putonghua, which is the national language, rather than their own native language. That is also, we can think about it as another initiative to further infuse the ruling party with the nation and with a dominant ethnic group. Um, and I think that uh, you, Hong Kongers also have been um, discussing about these language policies. So again, as a former British colony, or like just like other colonies within the Euro-American empires before, Hong Kong has experienced um, education policies that privilege and prioritize English over Cantonese and Chinese, because partly is that English is associated with cultural capital of white supremacy. And so what is happening now, you can see it, understand the push from the CCP to use Putonghua uh, in lieu of the uh, more popular local languages. It's a similar kind of initiative for the state to consolidate power, partly through linguistics and language use. Um, and Hong Kongers have been worrying about this ever since that we noticed that the Beijing and the CCP is attempting to ideologically and politically integrate the special administrative region. And so the, for example, the dystopian film 10 years uh, was supposed to be reflecting on what is going to happen in 2025, assuming that by the time the Chinese government would have completely taken control uh, and taken all the self-determination for Hong Kongers away. And so there's one segment in which um, a taxi driver can no longer make a living in Hong Kong because his Putonghua is terrible. And because no one else in the city really just speaks Cantonese and only the quote unquote backward uncivilized people can will speak Cantonese. And so that even though it's a dystopian movie, is starting to ring true as we're seeing the protests in Inner Mongolia and all of the kind of education camps and the push for linguistic uh, unification in other areas within China. Yeah, it, it does definitely sound like textbook supremacist ideology at this point. Uh, kind of linked to that, you, you mentioned the movie 10 years. I haven't watched it yet. I want to watch it soon. But the way um, I guess part of, like the underlying theme is the role of memory 
and the way the you mentioned a number of uh, well dates on your uh, in your article that I'll just read out loud and maybe we can get into them a bit. I think I recognize most of them, but I'm not sure. Uh, 612, 721, 831, 928, and 10.1. Um, you mentioned that some of the textbooks now will not mention the Arab Spring. I read, I read that uh, mentions of Tiananmen Square is also going to be uh, removed, essentially. Can, can we talk, can we get into it a bit, into the role of memory in all of this? Um, the fact, for example, just to sort of set the scene, I think many people may not know that um, the commemoration for the Tiananmen Square massacre was actually held in Hong Kong every year, uh, which obviously they can they can't do it in mainland China. So that there was very symbolic power of this, and the the memory of that massacre from some of the conversations I've had uh, definitely seemed to have been informing protesters on the streets and indeed in the diaspora uh, as to the urgency of the 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 whites the the broader struggle against the CCP, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, when the Tiananmen massacre happened uh, and there were subsequent killings and repercussions later on after June 4th, uh, the, in mainland China, there is a big project of censorship uh, going on. And so, but at the time, Hong Kong, which is still, it's 1989, is still a British colony. So people kind of like the Democratic Party OG, like Martin Lee was already active in organizing uh, commemorative events in Hong Kong. And that has been a stronghold every single year. People, tens of thousands of people gather in Victoria Park on the evening of June 4th and light candles. And they will often also listen to testimonies by um, parents who have lost children during the Tiananmen incident. Um, and so these assemblies have always, until this last year, uh, been approved by the Hong Kong police. And so the essentially what happens is that if someone in Hong Kong wants to organize a march or an assembly, they will have to apply to the Hong Kong police and to receive uh, a permit of no objection. Um, but so to the, so like this year, um, when the organizers were attempting to plan this, citing COVID regulations, the government refused to allow this to happen. But people do it, did it anyway. Um, and I watched the event live streamed on YouTube. Um, but later on, folks who are organizers were arrested uh, for organizing an illegal assembly together with other things that they have done before Then now the government found threatening. And so I could think that keeping that particular event alive, uh, creating the, the, an archive of testimonies by victims and victims' family members is immensely powerful. And Hong Kong is the only place within China's sovereignty that has a museum on June 4th. So the latest development is that since the passage of the national security law, the museum is really concerned that they will be shut down by the government. If that's the case, then the, all their archival materials and artifacts will be lost. And so they recently successfully um, 
finished a Kickstarter campaign to digitize all their data and to also curate and gather more artifacts to create a digital museum. Um, and I think that like, speaking of memories, in a sense, you can think about uh, shifting to using more digital media technologies. It's allowing folks on the ground to keep the memory alive. So even though there is state censorship for online communication, I do think that there are still so many different nooks and crannies and crevices in which activists can make use of these spaces to continue to circulate and to document um, memories and events that the government cannot 100% extinguish. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, would you mind uh, telling those who don't know sort of the significance of the dates? Um, Tiananmen Square, we didn't mention it. Uh, I'm going to have a entire episode, uh, just I'll completely announce it now, uh, an episode on Tiananmen Square, hopefully in the next couple of months, I think, I'm not sure. But as for the remaining ones, um, 612, 721, 831, uh, 928, oh sorry, one of them was already Tiananmen Square, and 10-1. Um, what are they about? Why do they? Why? Why do they have? Uh, what does the their significance come from? I guess. Yeah. So all of those events um, were incidents in which large-scale protests turned into crackdown. Um, so, for instance, um, in September 28th, there has been a lot of people who went on the street, but then also the police crackdown was dis disproportionately heavy. Um, and I mentioned earlier with the same with uh, August 31st. So a lot of these numbers became markers of collective trauma in which people in Hong Kong remember how the police force works for it the regime and not for the public. Um, and I think that among all those numbers, what I want to highlight in addition to the August 31st is July 21st. Um, so July 21st of last year, we called this the Yunlong attack. After that day, um, that's when Hong Kong people started at, at the editing uh, kind of a sixth demand, which is like to abolish the police. And that also then, became a connector to movements in the US, to movements across the globe about police violence. And so what happened that day was that there were hundreds of uh, gang members in wearing white t-shirt in Yunlong, which is usually not one of the significant protest route because it's in the new territories and the, all the government headquarters is in central of Hong Kong Island. But what happened was that as these gang members are gathering, um, the district, district councilmen have called the police and say, hey, something's not right. They're all holding metal rods and sticks and looks like they're up to no good. And no police had shown up all the way until later that night, pedestrians and passengers inside a subway station were brutally attacked, including someone who just walked by, uh, going home after work. They were attacked by this, this gang of people and everybody keep calling the cops again and again, 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 again. 
And the police finally show up after close to 40 minutes, and by then, all the attackers have fled. Um, so what happened and why this event is also in connection to memories and disappearance is that ever since then, the police has not really held anybody accountable, nor themselves, um, for not showing up to the event and then just like a, a few weeks ago, the police spokesperson came out and said that they decided that this is, in fact, just a gang fight on both sides. And instead of arresting and charging the folks who are assaulting people, they arrested two pro-democracy uh, lawmakers, including the one who had called the police four times that night, saying that he is participating in a riot. And so that's for many of us um, who have been seeing this unfold in the span of over a year, this is yet another instance in which the police is attempting to um, rewrite the narrative of what happened uh, to, in a sense, by rewriting, to also erase and to gaslight people for remembering their version of it. Um, and I also think about... Um, this kind of the narrative that police gave is kind of connecting to uh, Black Lives Matter activists in the U.S. Because like similarly, Donald Trump uh, had once said, you know, it is just there are just good and bad people on both sides. It's a similar kind of narrative to undermine and to also dismiss the severity of violence when it's perpetrated by someone who is pro the government. Um, so that particular day, coupled with uh, August 31st, again, once again, it's the police refusing to be held accountable. Those are both, I think, um, most prominent examples of the dates that Hong Kongers mark and commemorate every every month, and not just years, months. Yeah, thank you for that summary. Um, there, there's this word in Arabic uh, called shabiha, and I mean, I'm guessing many listeners already know this, but it, it comes from Shabah, which is like ghost or spirit and or specter, I guess. And it refer it used to it used to be um, like associated with uh, the Syrian uh, Shabiha, and basically they would be kind of armed uh, sectarian gangs, uh, sort of doing the government's dirty work without the government needing to. Uh, be directly associated with them essentially, but everyone would know where they come from and who they uh, are paid by. And, and the idea actually is to uh, send the message essentially in that uh, old school, I guess, uh, mafioso style. And in Lebanon, now we just use it to describe any pro government um, thug. He is, it's almost, I mean, it's always a he. Uh, he is usually. Um, either like associated with the state or uh, in, like directly or indirectly, basically. So it's either like uh, he's, at the, he's an employee of a political party, or it could just be as well more of a street gang type, but that is then um, utilized in a specific purpose, for a specific purpose, namely usually to, to beat up protesters. And I mentioned this because I feel the the word itself is actually kind of brilliant, Shabiha, because it 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 emphasizes the phantom-like um, dimension to these people. Like they're doing this, and you can see them, and you're filming them, and you're talking to them, and you're running away from them. 
but there's no actual mention of them. They, they are mysterious. They kind of vanish in thin air, even though everyone knows who they are, but they're not given that name. And, you know, it does go back, of course, to hauntings and goes back to um, the sense that we are not just up against or this is the sense that i get out of it essentially that we're not just up against the state uh, in a concrete sense as in like you know we know where the cops are we know where ex-president or uh, see uh, what have you we know where they are it's very concrete but we're also actually battling out in um, the field of ideas i guess if if that makes sense or like the idea space and i guess what i'm trying to get at is the role of memory is something that I'm personally studying. It's part of my PhD, although I focus on cinema. It's one of the underlying themes, Lebanese cinema, but it's one of the underlying themes. And the role of memory and how to weaponize memory and distort memory and uh, gaslight memory even is something that is actually not well understood, I feel. Or at, at least that's my that's my uh, interpretation of it. People do still believe. So I'm referring again to this group of friends that I mentioned before, and I sort of, I'm thinking of them as my audience right now, because and then I, I scale it up, and it's easier for me to think this way. And my group of friends are mainly Lebanese, a few Palestinians, fairly well-seasoned activists, well-read, and they know what's going on roughly. You know, they're, they're well-read, they know what's going on in the world. But whenever we talk, we start talking about things that are not concrete. So like someone got beaten up and someone got arrested, then that's concrete. But then if you don't know who did it or there is an official denialism or then you have this kind of gaslighting, like there, there are good people on both sides kind of gaslighting, then it's when it gets uh, muddied in some ways. And this is when I, f I, I, I've had this experience where activists sort of feel that we've entered a different field right now, sort of like a post-truth post era, although that term is often misused, but that we've entered this field essentially where it's very difficult for us to actually do anything because we're no longer debating uh, based on facts. In some ways, as we see on social media, it ends up being who has the largest platform, who is the most persistent, who is most abusive even, and, you know, which goes back, of course, to you being called the hand traitor. And I wonder if we can kind of shift gear in the sense of, I, I'm, you know, the elephant in the room on social media is often tankies, as we call them. And I, I am honestly a bit tired of always talking about the tankies. But one thing I, I was hoping we can do maybe is sort of talk more about the mental impact of this sort of gaslighting campaigns and tankies and people who just essentially go on social media either boosted by state uh, post-state outlets or not even boosted by post-state outlets. Many of them just do this out of their own volition. And what kind of impact that does that leave on you, for example, when you know you might have spent an entire day uh, scrolling through Twitter and getting updates from Hong Kong or whatnot, and then at the same time, of course, seeing what some other prominent whatever uh, uh, disinformation <laughs> campaigners, whatever we want to call them, um the confidence that they they exert on on social media the fact that they really there's there's a complete disconnect in my opinion between what they say and the impacts that uh they seem to think it does or doesn't do and so yeah i'm rambling a bit but i wonder if we can get more into the mental health aspect of it because i feel like i don't want to give too much oxygen and 
attention to these people because they seem to actually quite enjoy it. And I prefer to actually talk into like, like how, so let me ask it more directly and I'll stop gambling. When you do see these um, campaigns, these tweets, these Facebook posts, whatever, what have you, how do you actually deal with them most of the time? Um, yeah, to answer that specific question, then I have some other thoughts based on uh-huh. the things you just said. So I, th- I think at the beginning, I was more dumbfounded and partly because I was actually working earlier, a few months before, when tankies are still attacking the Hong Kong protests hardcore. They have, of course, since shifted gear to deny what's going on in Xinjiang. But when they're still kind of on a rampage against the Hong Kong protesters, I was working on um, a journal article for rhetorical studies, essentially is to interrogate what makes building transnational coalition across social movements so hard. Um, And one of the reasons why it's hard, it's exactly because of these geopolitical contexts are located across culture, across nation state, and it's very easy then for bad actors in bad faith, and sometimes with state-sponsored actors posing as grassroots to kind of co-opt these arguments, and by doing so jeopardize the coalition potential. And so while doing research like this, I came across my own writing lambasted on a tanky website. Um, I think that to me, it took me a while to recover and partly because it is a moment in which my identity as a Hong Konger, my identity as a scholar and also activist all collided and was not just under siege uh, ideologically, but in the sense that when I was reading it, I started to feel like, hold on a second, what if I was the one who misunderstood? Because I think that for those of us who really always or have hold ourselves accountable and have the integrity to get our arguments and observations as accurate as possible, we always will have that healthy amount of self-doubt about like, how am I sure that I am gathering this data ethically and correctly? How can I be sure that this characterization of what I see is accurate and representative of what other activists see? And so the psychological or mental burden that comes from this kind of um, tanky messages is that I then start to think about, okay, what if I got it wrong? Uh, How much am I supposed to be engaging with these arguments, even though I'm like, you know, 99.9% sure that they are doing it in bad faith. And so that's kind of the beginning stage of when I'm starting to engage with this content. And later on, it is becoming repetitively tiring and spiritually draining because, like you were saying, a lot of these folks have a big platform. And so the way that the the language that they use is very attractive to people who identify as leftists, for example, using words like uh, neocolonialism, anti-imperialism, settler colonialism. So it's using similar buzzwords, but kind of turning them around to undermine a grassroots and uh, social movement. 
And so later on seeing that, it was complicated in figuring out how I where how I feel about it and how much I ought to engage with that. Um, and I think I, I don't even know at this stage whether I have it completely there because sometimes now my mental reaction was like, oh, I'm just going to scroll past this. But deep down, seeing people say things and spreading disinformation campaigns, it's still re-traumatizing. And so I think like as activists or even like diasporic activists, seeing so many arguments from all different cultural perspectives and ideological sides, there is this danger of sometimes feeling numb, but the numbing, it's also a line of self-defense so that we can continue to re-immerse ourselves in the discourse and be able to analyze them. Uh, it's a constant kind of struggle of how much to dip in and how much to kind of come back out. My intervention in the story, I guess, is more that I, I've had similar experiences, but just kind of like with a three, four years difference, more or less. So in my case, it really started with it, it started around 2014, 15, and then it really kicked up in 2016. A lot of the very similar uh, groups of people that I, I refuse to name because, I, again, I don't want to give them this kind of oxygen. Um, they actually quite started their stuff on Syria and they started, some of them started on Ukraine, but for the most part, for some reason that many of us who have been following uh, Syria in some ways for longer uh, are still not entirely sure of why. It's, it, it seems to be more of a convenience of timing mixed with uh, Russian government uh, planning and it's kind of created this perfect storm. But anyway, yeah, in 2016, at the end of 2016, there was a fall of Aleppo at the hands of the, um, of the Syrian regime and its allies, obviously, in Russia, Iran, and so on. And that kind of was combined with a massive, massive online campaign of disinformation that uh, scholars are actually still studying to this day. Because, well, for many people um, in the Anglophone world, I suppose 2016 is obviously like Brexit and Trump and uh, that sort of thing. And in some ways, they are linked. There are, there is, there are some parallels um, in those worlds, especially online. But the sort of thing that... Um, essentially I had to deal with uh, kind of basically led me to de delete my Facebook account uh, a couple of years later. Uh, it was targeted at some point and other point was more kind of like random and so on. There was some ridiculous stuff and some heavy stuff. There were some death threats as well. And the, the entirety of it sort of, um, yeah, as you mentioned, like the risks were uh, numb, being numb, being depressed, being uh, I already have quite a lot of anxiety issues. So like this would obviously be kicking, um, uh, like just going out of control and so on. And this has been the more of the tragic aspect of it, I think. Uh, even if I sort of remove myself a bit, I'm not Syrian, although I have lots of Syrian friends, but I'm not Syrian. So I was able to uh, dissociate myself from time to time a bit more than um, well than my Syrian friends have, for example. But now it sort of came back uh, home in some ways because obviously with the Lebanon protests that have been happening since October of last year, 
uh, although we have seen some solidarities, of course, uh, I saw from Portland, from Belarus, from Hong Kong and back and forth. And there's kind of that interesting thing happening. It's being sabotaged, as you said, by the the disproportionate, I would say, uh, impact that these sort of more tan- tanky tendencies have because they use very traditional left-wing vocabulary um, for ne- very nefarious purposes. And if you don't actually know why these purposes are nefarious or why, the, why this is dishonest or wrong, um, it's very easy to just go with it because uh, you can just you know, insult anyone who's uh, replying to you as agents of imperialism or one thing that we get a lot is like you're just very westernized and, you know, pro-imperial and pro-colonial and that sort of thing. And it it gets to a point where, well, I personally, I got to a point where I stopped trying necessarily to actually like tackle them directly or convince them or reply to them. I still do it from time to time. And every time I do, I end up regretting it. Um, and I'm trying, like through this conversation as one example, but through others as well, to just solidify this common experience that people from Hong Kong, not solidify, like actually connect them. So people from Hong Kong have been saying things that people from Belarus have been saying in the past couple of months, just but for longer. And what Syrians have been saying is even longer than that. And Ukrainians have also been saying this. And I've seen it kind of popping up in certain random places essentially around the world. In Nicaragua, there was a bit of that. There was Libyans have said this quite a lot of uh, times. And again, since 2011, 2012. And the purpose of linking these groups up is not necessarily to uh, create some kind of coalition, although maybe this might be something, um, you know, up in the air. Maybe maybe at some point it becomes a thing. I don't know. But the, the more direct point, I guess, is to just um, make folks from Hong Kong know that folks from Syria have been dealing with something similar. And folks from U- U- Ukraine, Belarus, Nicaragua, Libya, so on and so forth. So that this ends up having a name because the tankyism, the tanky tendency, whatever you want to call them. Uh, because part of the problem has always been that in the same way as people didn't really believe that Trump would be elected or they didn't really believe that Brexit would uh, actually happen, they actually, there's always an element, this is a tragic aspect, there's always an element of like you only realize when something gets bad after it actually happened. You, only, you, don't, you don't realize how bad it is until it actually happens. And for me, and I know I'm sort of muddying the water because I just mentioned random names, Nicaragua, Trump and so on, and they're not all the same and I don't want to... A complicated conversation too much but I guess the, the my point and I'll stop on this and I'll ask you if that's okay to sort of have your reflections and I know you, you also had some stuff that you wanted to say uh, on that my, my personal goal is to just more use my experience which has which lasted for roughly two to three years uh, and that and I'm still recovering from them and as I said I sort of dip my feet in them uh, from time to time but I'm no longer in them as much as I used to be um, for mental health reasons, essentially. So that on on a more selfish level, I feel like then my trauma doesn't uh, go for nothing. <laughs> that people actually learn from it and don't repeat certain mistakes that I did and actually kind of skip instead of having to do do uh, go through what I, I I went through for three to four years to actually skip and just you know connect to other people faster and so they don't have to actually deal with it. 
and the way I dealt with it because it's it's not very nice at all. So yeah, I'll, I'll just end on this. Sorry for the rambling. Um, you wanted to you you had some other thoughts that you that you had uh, around uh, what what I was saying. So just go for it if that's okay. I wish I had give your heart because all the things that you said, it's it resonates so deeply. <laughs> um, I yeah, so I think like what you're saying about switching your kind of mode of engagement from directly tackling, debating with tankies uh, to now, trying to create more or are trying to create articulate and make clear this transnational connections it's it's key because i think that for me first of all i don't think again like, as also the speaking as a rhetorician who studies arguments we already have research that shows that even people who does not come into a deliberation with with bad faith it's really difficult to try to change their mind by just mm -hmm. quoting evidence, by citing sources that you think that are sound, because partly because of confirmation bias and partly also because that we believe in what we believe in because that is our world and identity is dependent on that. And so um, debating somebody using kind of like this formal argumentation uh, method almost never works and what, really does is useful in changing people's mind and it's something that um, political activists and advocates start doing called like deep advocacy is by sharing personal stories. And so there has been research conducted by in the US, the folks who like knock on people's door to invite them to kind of sign on a petition, they realized that folks, uh, the activists who were telling, sharing with these people one personal story has much better outcome in convincing those people despite political differences to sign on to their petition. And so, but then of course, the, the, the flip side of it is like, how much can we share personal stories that are traumatic? Are we willing to do that? And to what extent? And also, is it right. also kind of like screwed up that we'll have to tell people our trauma for them to believe us? Um, so there's like the political dimension of what is an effective advocacy method, but there's also this ethical question and also an emotional question about, are we willing to bear this burden to achieve this goal? Um, and another thing that you mentioned about how this tanky attack they have been around for a while, but they kind of in this different silos. Like for instance, are you mentioning, oh, Syrians have this knowledge and experience that Hong Kongers back then were not aware of at all. And then later on, Hong Kongers came out and they're like, oh, wait a minute. Wait, this, these people have been attacking other activists for a long time now. And so by kind of showing these kind of the orchestrated nature of this disinformation campaign and how systemic they are, we're not just um, showing activists transnationally that we share these similar current struggle, but we're also showing that despite contextual differences, we are sharing similar kinds of trauma. Um, 
And I think that there is value in just understanding that we aren't the only people who are dealing with or struggling against this seemingly insurmountable political project. Um, Because I think when the national security law in Hong Kong was first implemented, I had some conversations with Hong Kongers. They were saying that, well, I don't understand why a lot of it's diasporic Hong Kongers or even leftist Hong Kongers. Why are you all calling for transnational solidarity? What does it do, materially speaking? And so this is also the same debate about, well, yeah, Trump administration is terrible, but at least they have power. So maybe we as Hong Kongers should appeal to them. Maybe that's where our best bet. But I think a lot of what, especially what we are talking about here, is that the connections that we're cultivating transnationally with other grassroots activists is doing a different job. Um, we, We may not be able to see political efficacy from these kind of expressions of solidarity right now or even like in the next year. But what is happening is that we are showing this political and cultural and also emotional landscape of shared trauma, shared struggles and shared loss that I think is articulate a different kind of ethos that connects those of us who previously think that we are the only people who is doing this. And and I, what I would kind of think of this as almost a transnational or diasporic sensibility when our circle of concern expand to include not just those around us or those who look like us, but to include those who have been struggling against, for example, authoritarianism, against police brutality, inevitably Mm. the way that we're thinking and organizing is also going to be different. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I I really can't stress how frequent or actually just how uh, weird it was at the beginning. Uh, By beginning, I mean like 2015, 2016, to start seeing this like the increasing confidence that these waves, if you want, of thankism took on on Twitter, especially, but also on Facebook, and in my case, or well, from what I've seen, um, to the point where the sort of uh, the sort of stuff that Hong Kongers are seeing or have been seeing for the past year or so, or like Uyghurs or other other groups have been seeing for the past year or so online, um, it got to the like by the time uh, Hong Kongers got to see it in some ways it had reached a more uh, sophisticated level than when I started uh, witnessing it in the context of Syria. Uh, Even uh, around 2015, and I wish I had the foresight to just document and screenshot everything, but I I, I tend to not do that. Um, You sort of saw some of these figures that are now very confident. You actually saw their hesitations and you saw like you would actually see in our people who documented like the tweets that they then have deleted of when they used to be more principled and um, th- that sort of thing. And even that, which goes back to your point of like, essentially, like it's just not enough to just present evidence because even when you would present the evidence and show the deleted tweets and, uh, you know, the person who is now pro-government or pro-Russia uh, or pro-whatever, uh, that they had actually criticized Russia in the past, for example, and whatnot before deleting the tweets and so on. And this wouldn't be enough to actually 
convince the person who is uh, presenting uh, me with this argument, let's say this tanky argument, because ultimately, as you said, this isn't really about whether this is true or not. This is more about how this makes people feel their, their identity that um, uh, surrounds them uh, and that they end up uh, to give an I'll, I'll just give an example uh, instead of just rambling. Um, I know I have a good friend who uh, used to be a tanky <laughs> and uh, the way he describes it is the longer he was in the tanky worldview, the more invested he was in reinforcing his own beliefs. I mean, that's how a lot of ideologies work in the end. And of course, you have the extreme versions of more like cult-like behavior and so on, which we're also seeing now with the Trump stuff. And there are some, um, it's kind of like a Venn diagram with a lot of things in between, I guess, or a lot of things, sorry, that intersects. But he was telling me how it took him a while to actually get out of it. And he only managed to get out of it. And we became friends because uh, he uh, stumbled upon something that, that that I had said. And the thing that I had said was actually very fact free <laughs> because it wasn't I wasn't actually trying to convince anyone of, well, this chemical attack did happen because of X, Y and Z. Uh, which some people do, and like I commend them on their patience, but I really don't have that kind of patience. Or I no longer do have that kind of patience. Mine was more about uh, I spoke to this survivor. I just spoke to someone who had survived the, the, the chemical massacre in Eastern Ruta in 2013. And this is their story. This is where they come from and so on. And my friend... Uh, happened to be the same age as that person, who I think would have been 21 at the time or something. Um, and this is actually what connected him to that person, or that that's what planted a seed, if you want, in the back of them <laughs> of his mind that ended up um, unraveling this tanky worldview. And so this is why um, part of the problem for me personally. And I'm actually curious as to your opinion on this, um, as someone who studies arguments. Um, part of part of the problem, in my opinion, is just the structure of how social media actually is. Or maybe if I focus more on Twitter, so we we, um, yeah, because I, Facebook is a bit different, I guess. But on Twitter, um, you it's there's sort of actually an incentive, like the algorithm actually incentivizes you to have an opinion. And that opinion, it doesn't actually matter if it is based on facts or not. And I see this being played out in some ways through a sort of like, um, although I would be exaggerating a bit when saying this, but kind of like a banality of evil framework, you know, Hannah Arendt, but, and I'm not necessarily comparing them to Nazis, but it does feel that it just ends up blurring all of these lines and to the point where I could just feel like in 2014, 2015 especially, if you had told me that in four to five years, Nazis would be very comfortable online, I would tell you, yeah, probably, because I could just see it starting to develop slowly and you sort of see them become increasingly confident and on the tanky being kind of like the polar opposite, not opposite, actually the, the polar reflection in some ways, but on the left, um, 
you see them actually reinforcing one another and they end up talking to one another more and more. And you can just see this community, essentially. It is a community at the end of the day. It, it, it functions as a community, whether or not that community is healthy or not. Of course, that's a different uh, debate. Obviously, it's unhealthy. Um, but yeah, I, again, I'm rambling a bit, I'm sorry. But it, because it is one of those things that's very difficult to actually wrap your head your, your head around because it, for the most part, it's like 99% of the time only happens online. And whenever this happens, now we're learning, I feel like we've been learning because of Trump and Brexit, we don't necessarily, it took, it took a while for the world to catch up and understand that even if it only happens online, quote unquote, only, quote unquote, uh, it will have actual repercussions on the ground to the point where the line is actually blurred between what's online and offline. And I know you can kind of take this to different extremes, but I'm wondering if what I said right now actually resonates or if I just blurted out a word salad that made no sense. I don't know. But yeah, I'm just curious as to your, your reflections on this. Yeah, so um, I, I want to say that you're absolutely correct that at the beginning, folks still have the tendency especially before the pandemic, the tendency to kind of distinguish like things online and in real life as if things that happen on digital spaces are not real. But those of us who have experiences of being traumatized and abused in online discourse know that online real life, quote unquote real life, in fact, they just have the same kind of similar kind of real material embodied impact on people. And I think you're absolutely right that like recently also there are stories on CODA about tankies, especially uh, the way that they were denying the um, human rights violations in Xinjiang. So more and more folks are paying attention to the way in which online discourse and discourse communities are having actual impact on policies and also on the ways that the public are thinking about these controversial issues that supposedly should not be this controversial. Um, and I think that the pandemic is kind of making us have that realization because almost all our businesses are now conducted online. So our real life online, it's not really a binary. So that, that false binary is now being debunked as we continue to live in quarantine. And the second thing that you mentioned about um, the bubbles that are created, they're like sense of community. So there's a concept of discourse community in which folks not just, um, they're in a community not just because they believe in similar ideologies, but they're also in a community by performing similar kinds of discursive uh, tendencies. So, so for example, both of us earlier said that in tankies, they use a lot of kind of leftist academic buzzwords like settler colonialism mm -hmm. right anti-imperialism and so those the use of certain words in particular context then became an implicit expectations and discursive performances for people within the community to identify that oh yeah, yeah yeah you're one of us or for people outside to spot what kind of groups people are in and so i think the danger is for people who are not aware that these kind of communities divide exist, uh, they can very quite easily be co-opted by tanky 
writings um and partly that's also because like we don't have a lot of geopolitical knowledge of other movements of other countries i would say that from as like a as a professor have been teaching for 10 years in american universities it's also really true even among um, american college students who are domestic students Often their understanding, or even if they identify as uh, with left-wing politics, their focus tends to, again, focus primarily on U.S. And that's, of course, is tied to U.S. exceptionalism. But when we lack this kind of geopolitical knowledge and we also lack even the understanding that we don't know a lot, we then have become more risky in being co-opted by bad faith agents. Um, and so I think that part of the challenge of those of us who see ourselves as public intellectuals and activists is like, how can we, in the platforms that we have access to, cultivate these kind of diasporic transnational sensibilities? Um, and so the limitations, like you're mentioning with Twitter, the affordances of Twitter is you have to be concise, you have to give hot takes. But hot takes, almost by definitions, means that you will have to erase or downplay a lot of the messiness of complexities yeah. uh, in exchange for follows, in exchange for engagement. Um, and I think that, again, as a rhetorician, as someone who does a lot of thinking about digital affordances, that's always, it's always a give and take um, about how much we're willing to push the messiness aspect, how much knowledge can we actually impart on this platform and where and when do we have to decide that, okay, I think we'll have to switch platform or switch modality to teach our audiences something something that social media platforms are just not letting us do. Yeah, that's that's really the difficulty of it at the end of the day is that I don't, wanna, I don't wanna necessarily to focus on Twitter too much, uh, although it is uh, one of the main platforms, it just for me, it kind of just put it all in my face, you know. I, I got to the point where in, again, around 2016, the end of 2016 for me is just this dark blur. Like I can barely actually remember what happened. Everything feels like I was on the internet 24 hours a day uh, in the run-up to the fall of Aleppo and even in the, in the days and weeks that followed. And... I, I can't, I know, for example, that that was Christmas since it was the end of 2016, but I just can't remember what happened then. And the reason for that is that I was just so hyper online because there was this sense that, um, I, I mean, in my particular case, also because I had friends in Eastern Aleppo at the time, which was being besieged uh, by the regime and its allies, I was uh, struggling very badly. Like, I would just describe my reaction as just as a traumatized one like the just the reaction of someone who was traumatized because part of it wasn't didn't make sense it ended up ended up just feeling like you you know uh, having meltdowns on twitter essentially and the reason for that is because i couldn't wrap my head around the fact that there were a number of people and in the end there weren't that many of them but they had large platforms um that they had made their um reputation let's say off of Palestine. And for me, this is something that it took me a while to understand. And I actually had to force myself to like, I, I dug, 
I, I really can't describe how, how far I took this in terms of like digging into theory and trying to understand this because it made no sense to me. I won't get too much into it, but just suffice it to say that these were people that in a previous life, essentially, I knew them. Or if I didn't know them directly, I knew the people around them. It wasn't that big of a crowd. And that was in the era where social media was still young in some ways. Uh, it felt that way anyway, where we were all involved in like Palestine related activism. And there was this sort of like accepted um, worldview in some ways that I didn't know at the time if you just uh, projected on another context, the Syrian context, it can lead to very dangerous conclusions. And again, the, the details don't matter as much here, but it took me a while to sort of wrap my head around it because it was just so personal to me. The Palestine cause is personal, the Syrian cause is personal, uh, and I didn't really understand in my mind how someone with pro-Palestine views can just jump across the border, so to speak, metaphorically, and just be pro regime uh, which had massacred Palestinians and so on and long story short it took me a while to just get into the theory and start understanding the issues with uh, campism and tankism and authoritarianism on the left and the propensity for disinformation on the left that can be just as toxic as the sort of stuff that we associate with the far right um, to the point where I just got I I, I I found myself like without a political home, <laughs> to use a very weird uh, analogy, until I started seeing that other people were saying similar things. So, you know, up until last year, there weren't as many on the Hong Kong side realizing what was happening because things hadn't um, developed in Hong Kong in, in, or at least not as intensely as, as since then, as in the past year, for example. And, in that period, I also saw people like from Nicaragua and Belarus and Ukraine and every, everyone was saying the same damn thing. And it was just very surreal. It was a very surreal experience to sort of see what I thought was like my tiny world of the Middle East, of like Syria, Palestine, Lebanon, uh, sort of being reflected. And I just thought this might, this was just kind of some weird aberration. Like it just, it didn't make sense to the point where I felt like I was uh, being gaslighted. I mean, it is gaslighting at the end of the day, but because my friends and other people from Lebanon and from the region who did not really see what was going on, just assumed that I was probably, they didn't think I was wrong, but they thought that I was probably exaggerating, that I was probably not that bad. It can't be that bad because how can it, these people, are pro-Palestine, so why would they be so bad, so to that other extreme, just across the border, again, metaphorically speaking, because, you know, they wouldn't be physically there, obviously. This was a difficulty, but by the time, uh, you know, shit started hitting the fan in Hong Kong and in Lebanon and in Chile, I started seeing how, because that was more or less around the same time, and in Iraq as well, actually, I started seeing how certain narratives can develop in certain contexts, and my particular positionality as someone who actually speaks uh, in this specific context, Spanish and Arabic and English, allowed me to sort of just see certain things just being said in the, ex like sometimes the exact same words being repeated, but just in different languages. And I sort of saw this tendency and I ended up having a word for it, 
and now that I have a word for it or a few words for it, for, for it, um, it's not that it's no longer as scary. It's like the consequences of it is against, you know, they're still uh, pretty overwhelming and, and damning. But now that I'm able to sort of describe it, although not very clearly, as you can see in the past few minutes, I've just been rambling on, um, it, it makes a bit more sense in my mind because then I'm able to link it with these other concepts like, you know, discourse, discourse community, if, if that, a discursive community was it, of, of um, like when, I, when I'm able to end up, end up uh, placing terms, uh, actually giving them words, giving them uh, descriptions, they end up losing in some ways their mystic powers that they used to have over me before then where I would just overwhelm myself trying to just yell back at them. And even though I would see that it didn't actually make much of a difference, that actually my yelling at them might just make them more confident because like if they were hurting me in that way, then that, that would have meant that they were doing something right is I think how they would go about it, if that makes sense. I think that um, so in order if I've been dealing with like this sense of loss and grief that I felt about Hong Kong and so I've been listening to Pauline Box who found psychologist researcher founded the term ambiguous loss and she mentioned that when people are able to articulate a feeling or when somebody tells them that hey this weird complex emotions that you have has a name and it is a widespread phenomenon, miraculously, folks just immediately feel better. Like nothing yeah. <laughs> about their material conditions have changed, but they were just like, oh, okay, there's a name. I'm not crazy, all right. And so I feel like that's also how I felt too about when I then later on dive into more of the this public discourse and critiques about tankies, I was like, oh, it is a name, okay. It is just a Campbell people, <laughs> right? And this is their ideology. And I think that what kind of was mind-boggling and like psychologically so damaging at first was like the inability for us to kind of tease out. Like for example, if someone said something that's um, far right, spousing this white supremacist ideology, right away be like, oh, okay, I know who you are you like amorphous you and know what this what ideology you're standing for but when tankism first emerged we're like wait a minute i thought we're on the same spectrum on the same side of the spectrum but hold on a second we're not and it is really the these kind of crossed superficial lines of seeming allegiance i kind of threw me in a loop and i would give another example it's not tankism but um in Hong Kong, the faction of folks who identify as localist, some of them are heavily nativist um, and pro-Trump. Not pro-Trump, not just in the sense of like pragmatically speaking, he may be our best bet, but like pro-Trump is actually thinking that Trump, the Trump administration is a great thing. So a lot of these people are, um, they support the protests, they're uh, against police in Hong Kong, but they're also the same group who turn around and use conservative arguments to criticize Black Lives Matter protesters in the US. Um, it was like this kind of interesting and hurtful allegiance that I'm seeing is that on the one hand, I was like, wait, shouldn't you of all people understand why 
Black activists in the U.S. are calling for police abolition. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they were saying, espousing then similar kind of racist far right argument that I hear white Trump supporters in the U.S. are saying, it kind of threw my head in a loop and be like, I don't even know how I'm feeling anymore. Again, like you're saying, it's the <laughs> sense of like, you, you cannot find a political home. Like, so wait, hold on a second. I felt like we are, we all identify as Hong Kongers and we connect on the sense that we're both in support of this protest for democracy. But on the other hand, you're also closer or articulating similar kinds of arguments that far right, right supremacists are articulating. And so finding folks like Lao San is really helpful, finding like transnational folks like you uh, and seeing that, oh, these crossfires or like how fraught these transnational relationships are, I think it's just part of something that we always have to work through. Like it's uncomfortable, it's traumatizing, but it's also inevitable because partly because they're bad faith actors, state-sponsored actors, but another reason is that we also, we have internal diversities, right? Like Hong Kongers who all support the movement do not all support the movement for the same reason. We don't all think the same. And part of the the work that we, we have to do as public intellectuals, as educators, is also to tease out some of these differences and be able to articulate where our shared struggles lie and why those kind of solidarity is necessary. I've had different conversations on roughly the same topic, but, um, well, by roughly the same, it's a very, very uh, wide umbrella. Um, but yeah, it's it's something that for me, you know, the equivalent example would have been, as I mentioned, the pro-Palestine ones, because the sort of arguments that they would be giving, and I'm using argument in quotation here, uh, be giving on Syria was actually the identical to uh, what those on the far right were saying about Syria. And this surprised a lot of people. Uh, you know, there was, there was at some point, uh, those people, uh, what was it? I forgot the name. But in Charlottesville, they were... Uh, you know, those sticky torches and chanting like Jews would not replace us and that sort of crap. Some of those guys um, in the days and weeks before were actually spotted with uh, like with Pro Bashar Assad shirts. And that surprised a lot of people from what I could tell on social media and I'm writing an article about it because it really surprised us. And by us, I mean people from Lebanon or Syria or Palestine, but that are not just from those regions, but actually fairly, you know, well-tuned what's happening in Syria. Uh, this didn't really surprise us because we've actually been seeing those guys for like two years or so on before they popped up in the American scene, or at least when they, they came out of their homes, you know, with tiki torches. And um, this is something that is actually was extremely frustrating. Like 2016 was such a bad year. Like it, it makes, you know, 2020 is not that amazing year so far. But 20, 2016 was a particularly bad year for me as well. And I mean, for a lot of people between Brexit and Trump and the fall of Aleppo in this case and other stuff that happened back then as well. But it was additionally frustrating because the sort of stuff that we, and again, I'm using we as like me and my group of friends and others people were seeing on social media from around early 2015 or so, mid 2015 or so, um, 
it was like it was screaming at us you know it was like this is actually happening guys this is coming be careful look at it and we end up writing articles and tweets and facebook statuses and whatnot uh sort of like warning in some ways uh the world in some ways and then brexit happened and then trump happens and then fall of aleppo happens and it just feels that like two things at the same time one is well we knew it was happening and now we no longer feel insane that it happened but on the other hand we would still feel a bit insane <laughs> because it 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 feels insane that this all of these things are related because for the most part from what you like from our standpoint as people who go on social media they were happening on social media which was very difficult to uh, uh, like to accept if you want the fact that they were also happening in quote unquote the real world and that those two were actually completely linked and if anything they were the same thing and this was the very difficult thing um, around that time, four, four, you know, five, four years ago. Now it just feels that with the pandemic and uh, I guess the second round of elections in America, more people had like more time, I guess, to actually reaccustom and readjust their worldview based on these new facts and seeing how they actually have impacted the UK, how they have impacted America. And for me, the frustration with all of that is not that people started realizing, but that it had to actually affect America and the UK for people to start realizing this. Because as I said, with Ukraine and Syria, um, I'm not going to say it was the old news. It wasn't that old, but it was definitely no longer unfamiliar. And so all of those think pieces and the people debating on CNN and wondering what is this phenomenon? How could they possibly be doing this and whatnot? We were just sitting there, like talking to one another, it's like, well, we told you guys, we've been saying this for two or three years now, and it's very weird that it had to come to America and the UK. I mean, it's not weird because we know why, but it had to really come to America and the UK for people to really realize that we are talking, we are dealing with something that's extremely toxic here. And um, yeah, here we are. <laughs> yeah. I Again, it's like you, you were sitting here, it's like, I told you so. It's similar almost to um, the policy to whether we, we should be wearing masks. Um, I think a yeah. lot of Hong Kongers or East Asians, especially diasporic folks and immigrants, have been pulling their hair, hairs out this whole time. It's like, yeah, when we were earlier on saying that you we should be wearing masks because our scientific community has already been you know, suggesting that this is a sound strategy. Other folks, or especially white folks, American government included, were saying that, no, this is ridiculous. And then the mask then turn Asian people into targets of racial violence, right? Yeah. And But of course, what like exactly like what you're saying, it ultimately comes back to U.S. and your American exceptionalism, which I always think is ironic because, tankies think of themselves as anti-Euro-American empires, but a lot of their arguments continues to, you put the U.S. as the sole focus. So, exactly. for example, if you're, you are an grassroots activist, that's not possible. You must be sponsored by the U.S. government. So all these arguments inevitably then reinforce U.S. exceptionalism, even when, as they vow that they are trying to undermine it. Um, and I think that the, the frustration doesn't just come from not being believed when we were 
signaling to the world that something bad is happening, but it's a compounding of trauma that reminds us of all the other times that struggles of black, brown people are being undermined or swept under the rug until the interest of Western countries or white people are at stake, and then the attention comes back. And so I think that this is just one example of a, with a long history of not being heard. And uh, if we can shift gear again, <laughs> it's, it's very, I mean, uh, to sort of, um, you know, wrap it up in some ways, because we've been going on for what, an hour and a half now or something. First, like, honestly, thanks a lot for this. Um, it is always um, interesting. A part of why I do this is essentially to also to remind myself that this makes sense and that it's not just in my mind. And another thing, another reason is I have been seeing uh, feedback by folks who from very random places that I didn't, I didn't know much about before I was exposed to them, like Nicaragua is the other example, um, that were saying basically that they had to deal with this online attention for the first time. And so I'll, I'll sort of end on, I mean, on my side, I'll, I'll end on this note that 2011 in the, I'm not going to say Arab world, but like in the Arab majority world, so in the Middle East and North Africa, um, obviously were a series of revolutions and so on. But one thing that they also did, or at least in the context of Syria especially, is Syrians had to learn how to use the internet and social media and media in general like on the spot and on the streets essentially because before that everything was censored and they had to know what pr actually means and what uh what does it mean to actually speak to this audience of um well foreigners essentially like people who are online and who are reading what's happening in Syria and maybe watching videos and seeing photos and whatnot, but do, don't actually know the context. And Syrians, especially in 2011, I think uh, until around 2014, when they started to get the hang of it, um, although, you know, there was always, there's always been some issues there as well. Um, they didn't, there, was, there wasn't this awareness, if you want, uh, that we need to actually make sense and so uh, there, there there was a lot of um, miscommunication and mistranslations and misunderstandings and on some level that's normal because as i said they didn't actually have much of an opportunity before 2011 to experiment because they couldn't do mistakes and learn from them or whatnot because there was just no time and there was no space for it literally um but that that period of like four to five years was such a roller coaster until it sort of like cruelly ended at the end of 2016 with the sort of this victory quote-unquote victory of the Assad regime uh, those five years um for me just showed in retrospect especially all of the issues or a lot of the issues that face the world in general and our, our common <laughs> our civilization whatever the fuck that means but like people um, alive today and that are affected by the same things, um, I was really able to see it in some ways in Syria. And this the Syrian intellectual, Yassin Hashtala, one thing that he said that I find always found very pertinent, and that was like again five six years ago, 
is like Syria is the world and the world is being Syrianized from what he's from his perspective, meaning um, there's sort of like fault lines and illnesses that kind of led Syria to become the mess that it is today. It is sort of um, manifesting itself a bit everywhere. It's just that Syria, I think they just had every all of it at the same time in such a speed and such a scale that it was actually impossible to actually deal with. But we are seeing the authoritarianism of the Assad regime, uh, if not the practices, but at least the rhetoric being reproduced a bit everywhere. And indeed, the Assad regime himself, like itself, they reproduced it, uh, its war on terror narrative from, you know, the American war on terror and the Russian war on terror. They just picked the pieces that they liked from each of them. And, you know, that's why I'm able right now a bit more, I guess, is uh, what I'm trying to say to jump from place to place, um, uh, rhetorically anyway, you know, I can talk a bit about Syria, a bit about Hong Kong, a bit about Nicaragua, a bit about Russia and Ukraine and Belarus now, because there are these underlying themes of the authoritarian playbook, we might call it. And for me, when you start seeing how this playbook uh, plays out, <laughs> essentially, uh, again, it loses this mysticism around it. And so it no longer surprises me that there might be sectarian people on social media who attack me or whatnot, or people who uh, are pro-Modi in India or pro-Xi Jinping in China, who sometimes I would kind of find myself in their line of fire. The, the, the underlying logic remains more or less the same. It's highly patriarchal, it's highly authoritarian, it's highly nationalistic, however nationalistic is defined. And then the modalities actually change, of course. Han nationalism is not the same as, as Hindutva, is not the same as Zionism, is not the same as white supremacy. They're not the same. They function in different ways. They have other, their, their own characteristics. And I don't want to um, paint them with a brush stroke. But some things sometimes are uh, common. There's a commonality between all of these ideologies and more of them that actually also uh, overlap with the far right and overlap with tankism and overlap with all of these isms that have authoritarianism as their underlying theme, if you want. And for me, this is really the lesson of it all at the end of it. I just hope that we got to the point where there's enough of it out there that it's no longer shocking, maybe. And once we get over the shock, again, hoping <laughs> that that is the case, of course, there's the upcoming elections in America, so we'll see what happens then. But that we get to the point where we're just able to organize against it and it no longer has this power because a lot of its power has always been its the mystical aspect. Now in China it's different, I know, and in Hong Kong it's different, but when it comes to these other contexts, a lot of it has been the rhetorical power that these governments have had over us on these social media spheres that have been very difficult to actually dissect uh, due to everything that we've been talking about. And I, I won't just repeat myself, so I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. You're absolutely right that there's something called authoritarian playbook. Because like earlier when I'm mentioning that what the Hong Kong police said and what Trump said of the Charlottesville um, mm -hmm. white supremacists, mm -hmm. they're essentially almost using the exact same wording um, or similar kinds of suppression of education curriculum. And so once we notice these patterns, we know what to look for. When we look around in transnational geopolitics, we inevitably see them popping up everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that like, having that language and ability to identify 
these patterns and commonalities, despite cultural national differences, it's immensely powerful because it gives us a language and organizing tool to resist against it. And now you're saying like Syria was almost like a microcosm of a lot of existing injustices in geopolitical context in authoritarianism similarly reminds me of the Indian writer Arundhati Roy saying how the pandemic is a portal, is a portal for us not to go back to before, but a portal to understand what has gone wrong in a sense because it's like such a magnifying glass of things that have already been existing for a very, very long time. There was just now people coming to terms that, oh, wow, this is actually happening. And so I think like to to kind of wrap up what I would hope listeners to kind of think about is like, what kind of patterns are we seeing that we think is individual to our own political context and use that lens to try to see if they notice similar kinds of behaviors, performances or, or speeches in other countries, in other movements. And from there on, think about whether we can also expand our circle of concern to that include not just ourselves, but others as well. Absolutely. And on that note, um, Cheyenne, thank you a lot for your time. This I know it's been long, but I, I found it very productive. And uh, yeah, I look forward to what you're going to write next. <laughs> thank you so much. This is such a great chat. Absolutely. Take care.